0: Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk about making drawings, making comics, protecting your time, the MacArthur Genius Award, and more with my very special guest, Linda Barry. Stay tuned. Sagittarius. Hello from Los Angeles. Oh my gosh. You guys, I have to tell you, Linda Berry has been on my list of people who I wish I could interview for the podcast ever since I thought about having a podcast. And now that I've done it, I don't know where to go. She's the top of the heap for me. She is top shelf material. I've been reading Linda's work ever since I was a troubled teenager in Kansas City, um, I had Ernie Pook's Comique that I had cut out of the weekly paper, taped to the side of my zine box in my room that also had posters of Frankenstein, Clockwork Orange, and the Sex Pistols. Those things have fallen away, but Linda's work has stayed with me. I met her for the first time in, I think, about 2005 in Oregon. she had given a talk at a school, and her signing line was so long that the school actually closed and kicked us out. So Linda, I believe she was smoking a cigarette, set up on top of a garbage can right outside of the school and the line resumed. And so I met her over a garbage can in Oregon. I had a ratty bouffant. I was 25-ish years old. I weighed a little more than I do now and I had definitely stained, but double knit polyester clothes um, that were vintage. And when I met her, she looked at me and she said, I saw you, I saw you in the crowd. And I, I just, you know, I saw you immediately. Cause I just knew, you know, like we're cause I just saw you and I knew like, you know, you were my people and I burst into tears because her work is so meaningful to me. I can, I'm getting verklempt now just thinking about it. Um, you may or may not know Linda's story about meeting, Jeff Keane, the son of Bill Keane, who did Family Circus, she grew up reading Family Circus, and when she finally met him at a syndicated comics convention, she met Jeff Keane and she burst into tears because she felt like she had crossed through the circle that she had been reading about, you know, in this idealized family her whole life. That's how I felt when I met Linda Barry, because her work means so much to me. Um, I've read all of her books. I've taught many, many classes with lessons based on her work. And now producer Ponyo and I got to fly to Portland, Oregon to interview Linda Berry in her hotel room in honor of her book, Making Comics with Drawn and Quarterly. But there was a bonus twist. And that is it had just been announced that Linda was a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. We were so happy for her that both producer Ponyo and I wept again. Anyway, without further ado, I present you with my interview with Professor Linda Berry. But first, a short biography. Linda Berry is the author of many books, including Cruddy, What It Is, Picture This, and most recently, Making Comics. She's the Associate Professor of Art and Discovery Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, And she just won the MacArthur Genius Award. You can get Linda's new book, Making Comics, through Drawn and Quarterly right now and sign up to be informed the next time there's an opening for her workshop, Writing the Unthinkable at the Omega Institute. Now please enjoy my talk with Professor Peanut, Professor Freeball, also known as Linda Berry. Linda Berry, <laughs> congratulations on the MacArthur Genius Award.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> How did you react?
1: Um, well, uh, I, um, I hung up on them seven times um, in a row because I thought it was a robocall. And I was getting madder and madder at whoever was trying to really sell me something so then I just turned off my phone after seven calls and just and doing that that icky thing where you you answer and then go click oh yeah because <laughs> um, I thought that would teach whoever it was a lesson and then um I just hung up and then a, uh, I think it was a few hours later I can't remember um I got an email from somebody and saying this person's really trying to reach you and their name <laughs> their name was uh Marley's so I thought it was about Marlis. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, if it's about Marlis, I'll call you.
0: I was <laughs> oh, a friend of Marlis.
1: Or I just thought it was somebody who, you know, because it's, it's a rare name. Even though it was spelled different, it's kind of a rare name. It's, and so people get excited um, when somebody else is named Marlis. So that's what I thought it was. And, um, and then I called, and one of the things they ask that's really funny is they go, are you alone? I'm like, who is this? You <laughs>
0: sound like a yeah. creep.
1: No, but it wasn't. It didn't feel like a creep, but it was just at all. But it was just sort of like, are you alone? It's like, yeah. Then that's how I found out.
0: And they said, we're calling to tell you. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. What did you do?
1: Um, I, it's hard to remember. Uh, I, I was out on the back porch, and um, I remember not being able to feel my feet. There was this really weird feeling of uh, my feeling leaving. It was like turning into a ghost a little bit. You know how ghosts don't have feet? That's kind of what it felt like. My feet disappeared. And then we talked. Um, I don't remember that much. Uh, but then afterwards, I, I, I just went for a walk in the Grove and, um, behind my house. And uh, this is how I knew that my, my real family is school that's my real family because I started thinking about all my teachers and all my students and just how I mean I guess it's what a person who came from a real family would think about they would think about their family but that's who I thought about were, were my students and my teachers and um, it, it was like this just wave I guess it yeah it was a wave of, of that of thinking about all my teachers and, um, and my students yeah
0: did you call Marilyn
1: um, I sent her flowers um, uh, I sent her flowers so that when uh, on the day that uh, that it was announced that there'd be flowers there from me <laughs> yeah and I have a picture of her with her flowers um, Yeah. so yeah Marilyn was the really really important to me um, to, to contact but you can't tell anybody for a little while yeah. and which was really good um, because I knew that that was going to be a big part of my life for the weeks after the announcement so it was kind of lovely to just have this time where it was you were allowed to tell one person I told Kevin yeah it was you know kind of excited and also like my truck broke down we gotta get the stuff time we need to <laughs> cut wood for the winter it's like good let's do that
0: oh my god <laughs> did you tell your pets
1: Mm-mm. really they knew Oh. <laughs> they do they before I did. I think. <laughs> I think it's. I think pets are the one, the recommenders.
0: <laughs> They're like uh, your closest circle. No, no, closer, closer yeah. still. Yeah. They all recommended you for this. Yeah. Well, as one of your students, I was reclaimed. I was so happy for you. <laughs> it's so well deserved. I just was like, there's good in the world. It was just like a beacon of light to be like, there's good in the world. People who deserve this get this. Uh, People who deserve good things will get good things.
1: Well, what I also realized was I was really, Sometimes. I was, yeah, sometimes I was really going to be able to, to research the stuff I, I cared the most about. And, uh, that's the other thing that, that hit me was that I was really going to be able to do the work I wanted to do, um, without a lot of interference. And one of the things I want to do after sabbatical is I really want to, um, spend more time with, uh, seeing what happens between four-year-olds and um, university students. That project, mm-hmm. my drawbridge project, um, this idea of drawing with kids for uh, mutual benefit. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's and, and just being able to study people right before drawing and uh, writing split, or it's split for us. I mean, it doesn't naturally split, it's split for us usually. in, in It even starts in pre-K, but in kindergarten they split it.
0: What's your theory about it? About what happens? Yeah, because I guess I'm thinking about picture books to chapter books. I guess I'm thinking about the books that led me to thinking that those things were different. Yeah,
1: but 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 to think, but, but there's this point where actually the letter A and a drawing of uh, a monster are not different.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, you know how we call, we call letters of the alphabet characters, mm-hmm. right? They're characters. Um, so there's this point where when they're when kids are drawing, they don't say writing an A, they say drawing an A, or drawing your friends' names. So there's something about, it's an attitude of, I don't know for sure, but it's sort of like an attitude of the hand or something, that they're not different things at all, that these, uh, and, and that drawing is involved in writing. And there's some point when writing splits away from drawing. And, um, it's funny because I'm not thinking about books at all. I'm actually just thinking about um, it's when you brought that up. I had it hadn't even occurred to me because I'm actually thinking about um, activity, like physical activity with with a pen, drawing and writing. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't even thought about them in books as being different things. I'm talking about actually, yeah. verb, the verb drawing and writing, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Mm. So that's what you're gonna do. That's that's I'm your big say. plan
1: that's that's my yes that's my big plan is I really want to work with four year olds and my uh, university students it was a it was a program that I started a while ago because um, I was so interested in why um, my grad students were so miserable mm-hmm. and why a lot of college students are which it's just I don't feel like it should be that way and if it is that way then something's wrong um, and uh for me whenever I've been in any kind of creative jam it's always a an interaction with a little kid that gets me out of it Mm -hmm. um and if i'm lucky enough to have a sustained relationship with a little kid um that's even better so at the university i'm in a situation where i think there are four uh pre-k classrooms on campus and uh i started this program where i had my uh grad students work with four-year-olds as co-researchers on their on their work and um it's not a literal thing it's not like we sit down and work on our dissertations together but there's something about drawing and writing together um in a way that is mutually beneficial usually when adults draw with kids they're trying to teach kids something or they're trying to encourage kids you know they're not it's either one isn't very good you know yeah. it's like it's but being together and copying each other's work and doing the part for instance kids can draw the pictures but often they can't write the words yet, but they know that you can write the words for them. And so um, being in that kind of situation where you're building something together and you're equals, um, there's some mutual benefit that happens that I think is profound. Um, But it's so, it's right there where everyone can see it, but no one suspects it's there. So they don't, it's it's like the way adults draw with kids, again, is with this feeling of, Either I'm going to teach you or I'm just going to tell you how great that is. Mm -hmm. And either one of those, it's like imagine going out with somebody whose whole thing was you're going to either teach you or you're going to tell you how great you're doing. (laughs) It's like you're not there in a weird way, and neither is the work. You know. So that's the thing I always, I got to work with adults and kids. Um, There was this program called Saturday Science, where I'd have, um, I'd have these drawing jams. And so I was around a lot of parents and kids at the same time. And if a parent was willing to draw and, and do the same, the same project we were all doing, some really cool stuff happened. Parents who weren't willing to draw and who just sat there and either, again, encouraged or um, mostly they sat on their phones and didn't pay attention to what was going on. But I just noticed that some huge thing could happen or not happen. And it had everything to do with um, um, sort of being equal um, and drawing from mutual, again, mutual benefit. That's the, that's the thing I keep having in my head, that it's mutually beneficial to draw with kids.
0: You, you, you've you, been chasing the image, the idea of what is the image, for it seems like... Since I was 19. Since you were 19 years old. Yeah. Um, but also, you talk about the function of drawing and play on the brain. Mm-hmm. So, what happens to these grad students once they have reintroduced the image into their life?
1: Well, there's a, a number of things that happen. Um, one is just relaxing a little bit. Uh, one of the problems with grads for grad students, particularly those who are in like kind of hard academics, I don't know how else to put it, sociology or, you know, where where drawing isn't part of the isn't part of the practice um what happens is that their focus becomes so laser laser focused on getting this thing done and also um some relationship with whoever their advisor is and what that advisor requires uh that the rest of the world actually can't come in and so there's this feeling of having to get this thing done it's so oppressive and that every part of the world that isn't about getting that done is an impingement somehow so being around little kids and drawing with them and um, experiencing um, particularly in a pre-k classroom that's play-based rather than has all these other theories going on um, there's something about another human being even though the, this human being's only been on earth for four and a half years being able to demonstrate another way of being in the world um, that can help them remember and i believe it's physical you know i encourage my students to get on the floor with the four-year-olds i always tell them when they come into the room they sh- their head should never be higher than the four year olds that means they have to crawl mm-hmm. and then at the end of the day when they stand up which is always shocking for me when I stand up and I realize how much taller I am than these people I've been working with. Um, So I think that there's some memory there. And I also encourage um, literally copying in real time. So kids love to do this. They love bossing um, adults. And uh, so if a kid's going to draw, you know, they'll be drawing a picture on one side of the comp book page um, and then I'll have my students, I'll ask them to use the same the same kind of marker and also pay attention to the kid's non-dominant hand to hold themselves in the exact same position the kid is, mm. and then to try to move and draw in, in real time as if, it's almost like the kid's hand is sort of a Ouija board, mm-hmm. that planchette moving your hand. Um, and... There is a kind of deep learning that happens or deep experience that happens when you do that. Again, it's this, you you can't do it by trying. You actually have to sort of give in to moving your body a certain way. Um, so I think that just that, uh, being able to relax and have it be part of your uh, your academic regimen <laughs> that, could, that for this two and a half hours on a Monday morning, you have to do this. I think that that really helps. And then starting to incorporate drawing into, um, like, interpretation of academic texts. I mean, you know, in my class when you listen to somebody's, uh, something that they've read, and I ask you to draw what you saw, you can do that with academic text, too. Particularly if you have some language for drawing whole bodies instead of stick figures. I mean, stick figures go nowhere. hate a stick figure. Me too. And I'm so sad about them. I'm sad that they're they're showing up earlier and earlier in kids' uh, drawings. They used to not show up for a while. Now they're earlier and earlier. Um, But if you can just stand to see what your hand's trying to do, Mm -hmm. um, you can get some information that way that you couldn't get just by thinking. So, and I'm, I'm just interested to see if it seems to be so that the same kind of um, relief and um, sort of blooming of ideas will happen for other people, in, in the same way it happens for me when I'm with kids drawing and telling stories. And they're so interesting um, and so frank. I can't remember that. Coming in. Um, this is one of the last times I was with the four-year-olds because I'm sabbatical. I'm on sabbatical this fall, so I'm not with them, which is hard. Um, but the last time I was, one of the last times I was with them, there was this kid, Ella. She looked at me. She said, "Linda, you're old and you're gonna die." And I said, "I am gonna die." She goes, "You're gonna die soon." And I said, "That's probably. I don't know how soon." She goes, "A lot sooner than me." And and it's like this is the truth. This is the absolute truth. And then I was looking at her and we were drawing and I thought, when she's my age, I will be gone. I will be gone. And um, and then I thought, and will she still be drawing? Will Miss Ella still be drawing? I don't know that she will. Um, but it's just this wild, very real thing when you're with them. It's very different than the way it's portrayed in books or TV or anything. And it's uh, They're very frank and uh, completely present and um, very concerned with probably, the, I mean, the most essential things um, in life and death.
0: I feel like you might have more respect for kids and other people than some people do, because I know you've also worked in prisons, you've also worked with senior citizens, mm-hmm. you've done this kind of image work with so many different populations. And the thing that seems that they have that has in common, with you as a teacher, is the amount of respect you have for all of your students.
1: Well, I'm very interested in what, in the stuff that they make and, uh, and what they do. I find it, um, really nourishing and, uh, it makes me feel like life is worth living, which mm-hmm. is an essential, uh, essential state of, uh, mind. If you are, uh, a, a part of a species that can kill itself or others, the feeling that life is worth living is really important. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, they're just the most. They're just really interesting, interesting to me, and and less closed off for different reasons. And if you mention, you know, four K kids, people in prison, and senior citizens, these are all people that are um, being controlled in a certain way by either their environment or their physical. And for senior citizens, like living in in homes and stuff, I mean, there's there's an element of control, some mm-hmm. some external control. So they are people who really appreciate some kind of, any kind of being able to fly any sort of kite outside of that. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Some of the seniors I work with that are in the book, they can't, they are illiterate. Like, they grew up on farms. They Mm -hmm. didn't need to know how to read or write. And so then us coming in, I thought that I was going to tell them how to make zines and they were going to be like, thanks! But they were like, I don't... I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Making my own magazine is not yeah. part of my vocabulary, but I'm happy to talk to you. And yeah, I'll draw. I'll learn to draw. Yeah. I can draw. So people that have written letters, maybe ever or for, at least for like 50 years, will start drawing. And that is a language that we can share. And that's the thing. Like I can draw something and they can copy it and be like, I don't know. Is it okay? And I'm like, it's wonderful.
1: Yeah. It's great. Well, well, and then also the privilege of seeing that line. It's like finding a treasure chest that's just been closed for years and years and years. And then, and that's the thing I love about adults who haven't drawn for a while. And then if I can get them to draw, and if I have them long enough and with enough people around them so they can see each other's work and after a while get to that point where they forget to ask whether it's good or bad, mm-hmm. and they get to actually just have the language of it. Um, and then also being able to do so, for instance, if people can't can't write but they can tell stories, how wonderful to be able to write their stories down for them. You know, how wonderful to be able to do that. And, uh, yeah, it's just this wonderful, very inexpensive, uh, extra ordinary superpower that we have, this writing and drawing. And the use of hands, I mean, that's the whole thing that's amazing to me. You know, I'm fussing with this PowerPoint slide i mean this powerpoint thing that i'm doing for the for the book and i'm fussing and it's so maddening to not be able to just reach into the screen and just move stuff over it's like all the layers between my hand and the thing i'm trying to do it just drives me nuts you know
0: it makes working on a computer makes me feel a little dead it makes me feel significantly less alive at least so any of that like photoshop post production yeah. anything
1: yeah i'm the same way it makes me feel um really irritated and a little mean it makes me mean you know mm-hmm. it's just like it makes me just really very frustrated um versus Elmer's glue and uh scissors and a felt pen i'm fine
0: so you don't let people have iPhones in the classroom no which, which i really appreciate and i also don't and they'll be like what if i need a reference image and i'm like still no what if you need to reference an image file?
1: What about the one that's in your head? What about the one that's in your hand? That's more like it. Because mm-hmm. you'll, you'll be able to see that perfect elephant. You can even put um, Julia Roberts riding on top of that elephant. You can picture the whole thing. Now try to draw that. And um, it's going to be a completely different thing once it comes out of your hand. Drawing is really about your hand. Your hand is so included in that. It's definitely half, if not more, and uh, that's why I love having people draw with their eyes closed. I love starting that way because they start to see that there is this other part of them um that not only can make a picture um but can also it it, it can crack you up your own hand can crack you up, can make you laugh really, really hard um, but there's a and it's going to be interesting talking with chris um because. You know, he's on the other. His drawing is on the other end of the spectrum, but it isn't really. It's a. I feel like that guy has been following drawing since he was really, 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 really little, and has become this crafts person. I mean, really knows how to uh, make the drawings look just the way he wants them to look. You don't. You don't get the feeling in his work that. Um, that his hand and his intention are doing two different things Mm -hmm. um so that's going to be interesting because because i'm talking about a whole other kind of drawing i'm talking about the drawing (laughs) the drawing where your hand is such an active part
0: yeah you
1: know and um and is not within your control at all that's the kind of drawing i'm i'm i like all drawing frankly, but I'm really interested in in, the, in being around people who are moving their hand in that way for the first time in a long, long time.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Shoshana Ruth Wector, Michelle Lemoyne, Mary Pinson, Jill Soloway, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $500 if it's worth it to you via PayPal to HornetLeg at gmail.com. That's Hornet, like the insect, Leg, like its appendage, at gmail. Thank you for supporting a podcast that supports you, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's voice. And I have a special call-out. We have a lot of exciting episodes coming down the pike, including Linda Barry... Dr. Ebony Flowers, Jessica Laniato, and more. So please, keep us going by sending your pledge to hornetleg at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of my students get really excited and fascinated with the fact that when you sit down to do comics, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, you personally. Yeah. When they're like, I heard Linda Barry just sat down and started writing the comic without a script and without planning and I'm like
1: I know so does Chris really Chris Ware does does not know what's going to happen and that when you see the the depth of his work um, that is like so edifying it's so great to know that there are um, people where it just looks like this stuff has to be planned it's so deep and so complex um, no planning ahead is a really bad idea
0: I have a lot of students that have given me bad feedback because I don't teach them to script. Because I don't script, and I just don't... I'm like, there's other teachers that can show you that. I don't believe in it because it's a boner killer for me Yeah. to have to write what's going to happen instead of drawing what's going to happen. And so I've had students be like, I want to learn to script, goddammit. And, and they
1: should take a class on scripting. Yeah. They should take a class on whatever, playwriting. But because comics don't... The words and the pictures, when you separate them, you you just kill the thing they have to come at the same time you know it's just like you and I talking to each other right now we're talking there's the words that the recorder is picking up but we're making little motions we're nodding our head we're um, imitating each other's uh, facial gestures we're in a particular room and um, the difficulty for you is when you transcribe this is how to include that part too do you know yeah. what I mean yeah um they, those and I feel like if I just tried to write a script and then draw the comic, it would be such a drag. It would be such a drag. God, it would be like cleaning my room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'll have a really good idea for a comic, and so I'll try to, like, dictate it into my phone because mm-hmm. I'm on a hike. Or, mm-hmm. like, you know, write it down, and then I'll go back to draw. And I never get around to drawing it later because it feels like a chore.
1: Because you already, it already happened yeah you know what I mean yeah I don't like to know what I'm going to do what I do like to know is I like to know how much space I have and how much time I have Mm -hmm. those are the two things I just need to know is how much space and how much time and then um and, and then just get started yeah won't let one thing lead to the next
0: I love that I never I don't do that very much anymore I think once I start... You know, once, like, a literary agent was like, do you want to draw a graphic novel? And I was like, oh, gee, Willikers, okay. And I was like, okay, I have to plan it because I have to tell the publisher what's it going to be. And then I had to, like, get into this different mindset around it, and it became significantly less fun than everything I was doing before. Yeah,
1: it's just a drag. And also, the whole reason you're changing is because there's a publisher. And the whole reason there's a publisher is because they were interested in your work. Yeah. So something's wrong cut out the middle man Ugh. you know that's there's something wrong i mean that's why it's very difficult but i always wish um and drawn and quarterly has been wonderful because they never ask me to submit anything in advance nothing um when i finish the book the book's done but i always like to have something done before i try to to turn it into something mm. um like my, the book that I like the best um, is what it is, and that was there wasn't a publisher for that. before drawn and quarterly, I, I tried to um, do a book with uh, the publisher I had previously and they weren't interested. and so that I just built that book by itself.:
0: I like that you kept going because I didn't even realize until I was just rereading some interviews that they didn't want to publish another book of yours after a 100 Demons, it was eight years, which I eight. believe was a knockout of a book.
1: Well, I liked it. It's still in print, um, but it was eight years I couldn't find a publisher. Nothing. And and then all the the, um, the weekly newspapers started to go under, so that that job dried up. And I, all of a sudden, I found myself unpublishable without any job, and I didn't know what to do, and I started selling stuff on eBay and... Selling little com, you know, little drawings of Marla's. I
0: remember that.
1: Yeah, for twenty five dollars. <laughs> I
0: remember, I remember, like, didn't even have twenty five dollars. I was like, I can't wait to get one of those. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah but it was great because I figured it. It gave me line work. It, it gave me brush practice. I liked drawing her, and um, it was. I figured out I, I could make as much as a dental hygienist if I just if I did that, and that I felt like I could almost live on that. Um,
0: that's the bar, dental hygienist. Well,
1: that's what I feel like, you know, <laughs> dental hygienist. That's a solid job. <laughs> And, um, but it was, I, I like to tell that story to my students because they somehow think that a career is like this trajectory that just goes upwards, and mine c- crashed. And I didn't, if it wasn't for Drawn and Quarterly, um, I don't know what would have happened because who else would have published what it is? It's such a strange book. Um, no one knew what to do with it. I think Amazon for a while had it classified as science fiction, cuz no one knows where to put it in a bookstore when there were bookstores um oh. but uh yeah, and Tranquerly just they took that chance. I
0: mean, it's full color, Hard Hardback, I
1: know. They did a beautiful job it's with gorgeous. it. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, so that was really lucky for me.
0: I like I like the transparency of that too because my students they do they're like my goal their goal is to make a living doing the thing they love. And I feel like transparency with the cartoonists. I mean, like a lot of cartoonists you see who seem like they do whatever they want have a rich spouse, or have a day job, or te- they're not teaching just for fun. Except for you, most people. No, I'm you know? teaching
1: for health insurance. Yeah. I mean, not even the MacArthur can protect you from needing health insurance. Mm-hmm. I mean that's a that's a fact about living in America. I mean that's the, even that kind of shield uh, won't protect you. Um, so. No, i mean if and you you can make a living doing what you love if you're a cartoonist if you ad- adhere to the the basic rule of lo- of happiness which is low overhead and no debt mm-hmm. um and for my students when i tell them that they're already up to their necks in debt i mean that's a crime um but and then if you just piece you just have to piece a life together you just piece little pieces together I, i'm sure it's much harder now but um yeah, I was. I mean, I grew up poor, so it wasn't that big of a deal.
0: I think I've just always had a scrappy spirit mm-hmm. of being like, I'll do any job. Yeah. And then my comic, the job is to support my comics. right? Or the exactly jo- right. You know, exactly right. That job to give me the opportunity to have time to make the thing I want to make.
1: Yeah, that's your baby, right? That's yeah. you don't you don't have a baby and then tell it to buy you a car. You know, <laughs> it's it's a uh, exactly. You find a way to do it. Yeah, so I didn't, I mean, it wasn't like when, I, when uh, Sasquatch dropped me, um, it wasn't like uh, I quit making comics. Or that when, when um, I quit my comic strip, only because the, the, there just wasn't a venue for it anymore. It wasn't like I stopped making comics.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they just, there just wasn't any place to print them for but, a while.
0: But those characters are still alive somewhere. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, they're, they're still, they're ongoing. They're on, an ongoing concern.
0: I like that Marlis is a Sagittarius. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's a total sage.
0: <laughs> I'm a Sagittarius. Are you, I have a lot of Capricorn, so I have a little bit of a bummer there. Are
1: have, you? Are you uh, so close to the winter birthday?
0: December 10th, but I have a Capricorn moon and rising.
1: Mm.
0: Are you a Capricorn?
1: Double Capricorn, really? Moon and Virgo, yes.
0: I, that's why you work so hard, I guess. <laughs> I mean,
1: but I like it. I, I um, yeah, I like I like being a Capricorn. I'm married to a Capricorn. Oh. Um, but uh, I also love Sagittarians. They're my favorite. That's my favorite sign. Oh. Everybody knows it's the best sign. It's a fun sign. It's the best sign. People think Aquarius Aquarians even think that they're the best sign, but and they're good. But no nobody meets a Sagittarius ever.
0: Thank you so much. It's
1: true. If you have if you were gonna take a road trip and people said just bit UK, you have to pick there's twelve zoological signs. <laughs> That's all you can know about who you're going to travel with. It's solid sag all the time. That's who I'd pick.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it would make for fun talking in the car, mm-hmm. and then you could take side trips if you saw a good thrift store mm-hmm. or a roadside attraction. We'd be like, sure. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Oh, can we talk about the image and your lifelong quest to find the image?
1: Or What, what is an image?
0: What is an image? Can you discuss how you came to this question, and then what My have My
1: teacher you... asked me when I was 19. Um, I, was in a cl- I was in a class with Marilyn Frasca, and um, the question was, what is an image? And that whole class was kind of about images. I didn't know at all what any of it was, um, like even had a, re- I don't know, I mean, I when I went to college, it was a hippie college, right, but it was still college, and I didn't have the best, uh, I didn't go to the best public schools, even though I'm so grateful for my public schools. I do think that that's the foundation of who I am. Um, And when I got to uh, college, I felt really out of it. Um, I didn't know how to read in the way that people were reading, and I just didn't quite understand sort of an academic uh, point of view. Um, But she just had us work so hard. Uh, We had to write five pages a day, and we we had to do five finished paintings a week. And we had to do all this reading, and we had to do... It was just like this really intensive class that went on, and you only had one class. Hmm. And I... It's sort of hard to describe because it was such a full-life experience, but it was mainly about being able to see, see what's there, and to get past whether you like something or not. Like, that seems to be the biggest biggest uh, force field between a person and the thing they're looking at. And I remember Marilyn one time completely flipped everything for me one day when I was, we were looking at a, a picture of mine and I said, I don't, I don't think I like this. I don't know if I like this picture or not. And she paused and she said, it's none of your business. And it was this wild moment where I realized the picture existed no matter what I thought of it. Whether I thought this is the best thing I've ever done or the worst thing I've ever done or it's nothing, nothing happened to the picture based on what I was thinking about it. Um, And that that this idea that these things that we make have their own life in the world, They they have their own... Uh, right to exist, basically because they do. They've already they've already come out of your pen. They're already there. And then even the urgency to destroy them lets you know how alive they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You don't... Um, if there is a, a piece of lint laying on your floor, you don't really run over to it or get scared versus like a giant water cockroach or whatever that's rolling across the floor. That's the one that you have a big reaction to, right? So there's something very alive about something that you're hating or wanting to destroy. And, um, and, and that there might be something there that's more than, um, again, whether this is an image that's pleasing to you visually or not. And that got really interesting to me. And then also this idea that, um, you know, she's the one that taught me the way of writing that I teach now. I've a, I modified it, but it's it's basically the same thing, which is um, sort of going into your past using something specific. So, for instance, kitchen tables. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have ninety seconds to write down every kitchen table that you can remember. Um, and even as I'm telling you this, there's one that comes to me, uh, that, which was this dining room. This dining room table that my mom had refinished and just gone to town on, um, and that my brother had crawled underneath and um, and gouged a peace sign <laughs> <laughs> underneath that table, and uh, um, it's a, I mean, it's wild for me to even just say that. And as I'm saying it to you, have this table come back and the time um, of that table come back and all the trouble. Um, of that table the relationship would be my brother and my mom and whatever um, this idea that there are these stories that are available to us all day long hundreds and hundreds like fish row you know and um, so she taught me that way of working and sort of instead of saying what would be a good story to write um, actually allowing the back of the mind to present an image um, I don't know it's difficult it's, it's, it, it's sort of difficult to explain but uh, not very difficult to demonstrate
0: it feels like being in a trance
1: dream dream kind of dreamy trance yeah because because it's as if the the story uh seems to just come on its own you know and once you show people that because the fact the matter is there are two ways to do a story there's that way that way where it kind of drifts up and then there's a way where you can do it purposefully, and you say, "I'm going to write about this specific kitchen table, and I'm going to do it this way." Um, you know, I'm not as interested in that way. It's it's a little it's it's just not as fruitful for me. But th- but those two ways do exist. Um, the problem is when people just don't know that there's another way. And and the, when I say there's a problem, it's only a problem because if you only if you think everything is planned out or scripted or intentional after a while there's a fatigue that sets in and then you don't want to make it you don't want to do it and then you don't mm-hmm. the end that's the, that's the part that's sad about that that approach to me and then you just live watching other people do it you know?
0: yeah. how has your idea about the image changed throughout all of your research and your work and your life making so many stories
1: well I think that an image now is um, not a thing um and then for a while I thought it's a place and I don't think it's a place anymore I think it's a um, it's a different kind of awareness or uh energy is not the right word but it's closer it's a it's a different state of mind it's as if uh It's like you can look at a chair and there's the chair that you see when you're in one particular mood. But you can look at that same chair right after you find out someone you've loved very much died. And there's a way that that chair looks um, at that point. Uh, it's, it's as if, It's as if it's the same world, but there's a completely different approach and way of being in it. And it's not necessarily a happier... Uh, or better but it's definitely a more alive way of being in the world it's like a closed system or an open system mm-hmm. and images are have this openness um it it's it's not necessarily good or bad but it's open it's more open like something can happen something unexpected can happen something that you feel like you're part of rather than of uh, the author of mhm yeah.
0: um pivoting Listener Allie Liebigott, friend of the show, fan and friend of yours, says hi. And she wants to know, do you work inside of your house? Do you have a studio outside of the house? Are there pros and cons to you of each? I think she's considering getting a studio outside of her house.
1: Um, I have a studio outside the house, but it's like a block away. It's, not even, it's, you know, it's, it's down the hill from my house. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's an old hog shed that I've turned into a studio. Um, I think it's vital to have a place where you cannot be interrupted. Like, reliable, uninterrupted time is critical. Um, and so I live out on this farm, um, and I only live with one person, with Kevin. Um, but even for Kevin, it is really difficult for him to understand what I mean by uninterrupted time. So oftentimes, if he wants, if he's gonna go to the store, he'll tr- come by to the studio to just let me know he's going to the store. And I, and I turn into, like, a complete awful person. Like, just leave me a note. Like, don't <laughs> interrupt me. And um,
0: After all this time.
1: <laughs> people can't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it, and I don't think that they can get it if, they, if they're not built that way. But I was trying to think about why it's so awful when somebody just, all they're doing is saying, I'm just going to the store. But I think part of it is once I was um, I was uh, at a total immersion language school um, in Nova Scotia. I was visiting. It was fr- it was a French school, and by by the rules, where you could never speak English. You can't say a word. If you if you were caught speaking English twice, you were gone. They were very very strict about it. Um, and there came this point where. Even though I was just visiting, and I, I speak some French, but there was this point where I felt the fluency happening, mostly because I didn't have any English. Um, and uh, I think there's something like that. I think that there's something about this total immersion and this language that I think is images, the lang- I think they're the language that language is based on. That to have that interrupted and have to speak to someone in uh, in real time speaking English about something as dumb as going to the store uh, completely disrupts that. And it's as if whatever little uh, world that's been conjured into the room just goes right back into its, I don't know, like sea urchins or something, goes right back in. Um, and it I think it makes a lot of people who work with images seem like awful um Uh, self-centered I don't know if self-centered is the right word but you know what I mean like awful bitchy people Mm -hmm. Um, because that's how I feel I always feel like I turn into this monster just trying to guard my time Um, but what if it's just the nature of the work like what if it's not about like my whole history with being interrupted Mm -hmm. what if it's about this particular kind of work just it it doesn't lend itself to interruption, you know. It requires the opposite of interruption. You know, it, it requ- it's because it, I've tried to think about it. I've tried to do stuff like take a breath, answer nicely. Um, but I know that the thing that makes it possible. The only thing that makes this work possible is having absolutely reliable, uninterrupted
0: time. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. At this point in the interview, Professor Pina and I started talking about teaching. I told her that I teach in an MFA program where some of my students are brand new to drawing and some are old hats at it. The same with writing stories. I tell you this for a little bit of context because we're jumping right back into talking about teaching and people's uncomfortability with drawing their stories. I have to make weird rules like... I teach an online portion over the fall after I see them in the summer because it's low residency Mm -hmm. and I have to ask them to not send me lots and lots of text because the students who are not comfortable with drawing will sometimes add like a very long preface like Lord of the Rings like so much detail about like the elven world and the past and whatever and I just have to keep reminding them like the thing I'm here to show you is the thing you're not comfortable with which is drawing these stories and figuring out how they fit on the page and you know, how to move it forward. So when you give me all this text, that's not, that's showing something you already know how to do. Yeah. I need you to practice doing something that you're not familiar with. Yeah, and it's also the text is, it makes it so that the the thinking stays in text
1: versus mm. versus the kind of thinking that happens when you draw. For instance, when we were at Omega, um, you know, sometimes we'd start a, uh, we'd do an X page and we'd start um we'd start a piece by writing it and then drawing. But if you start the piece by drawing first, something else happens to the writing. Something completely different happens to the writing. If you start with the writing, the drawing always seems to be in service of the writing. But if you start with the drawing, something strange happens to the writing. And uh, Dan Sean, um, who I, my writing partner we work together we've been um, we we do a skype uh writing session twice a week oh. we're both working on books and we have like two and a half hours twice a week just like a class that we meet and um one of the things we've both been blown away by is when we start a scene by drawing it even if we think we know what the scene is about mm-hmm. if you start by drawing it 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 changes it's, it's as if there's new information so when you're talking about your students being able to write in text you know like about their elf elven world yeah um they can describe it but it's really different than if they tried to draw an elf uh crossing a room with some chalice that's too full to be able to carry without spilling like Mm. if if they drew that there would be so much more information for them than if they say elf tries to cross the room with chalice that's too full Mm -hmm. you know it'd be it'd be so different
0: it's embodied
1: yeah yeah. I mean, when you're drawing somebody holding something, and that's the problem with people who get so good at animation, it's like those are the people that are the hardest to bring back. Mm. Um, for me, they're the people that are the hardest to bring back into the, uh, the world of being able to, to use drawing as a means of discovery because they already know what they... I always think when people draw well, it's because they've figured out what not to draw. Mm-hmm. You know what they 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 know that I can't draw that, so I don't draw that um, but it's as if their hand has this habit that's almost unbreakable. Mm-hmm. you know I really feel sorry for people who um who are really proficient animators. I feel really sad for them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they feel very sad
1: for me too.
0: Have you seen like that Miyazaki documentary? And there's all these people just hunched in this office drawing. Yeah. And they'll come over and be like, "This is crap," and just like throw it away—the thing they've been working on for hours. And they're like, Oh, I just have to start drawing it again." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that actually, that
1: Miyazaki's. What I think there was some documentary I was seeing where you could even tell with with the work that he was doing there that there was always some room for something that was unexpected.
0: Well, he sometimes doesn't know until the very end. That's right. Like, spirited away, he didn't know what was going to happen. And so they would just start animating what they had. Right. And then he would decide what happened next. Yeah, or,
1: or I think there's some scene at the very end where he thought something was going to happen, but it was a word that sounded like this other word that it ended up being. Really? Yeah, I mean, it, it was like right to the very end where he even, had, yeah, he even had the last scene, and it flipped right at the last second. Because mm. he couldn't have come until that last second. You know, um, yeah, I love that about him, that there's that uh, there, that openness.
0: I went to the, I think I went to the documentary, there was a Studio Ghibli Fest or something mm-hmm. here, and I wrote down, he said something like, the world is too complicated to express in just words. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so helpful for thinking about when I'm teaching. Yeah. And yeah. And I want people to add more. And you are adding your spirit or your energy to it. Yeah. I was thinking when you were saying that kind of, you know, being in your studio, being wrapped up in your work, I've always described it as kind of like Lord of the Rings when Frodo puts on the ring. Mm -hmm. And then he's in this world that no one else can see, but Mm -hmm. it's like, yes. And I always described it when I was doing some of my books, I was writing like the worst moments of my life, you know, like about my dog dying or a breakup or whatever. I was like, it's kind of like I'm Lord of the Rings experiencing this thing all over again and no one else can see it. And then I come out of it, and I'm a little bit shell-shocked or in a trance, and I have to kind of do something to come back into the physical world of now. I think that's exactly right. The world that no one else can see. If we think back
1: to that idea of a play, um, you know, where there's the play going on and there's the audience in this theater, and that somebody could walk in and think somebody was really just sitting at a kitchen table, not realizing they were on stage in a play with this other thing going on. It's that... That's it. It's that the people who come to interrupt can't see. They can't see you in this other world. They can't see it. Um, that makes sense. They actually can't see it. Even if you tell them it's there. They th- can't. They can't, or they can't believe it. And then, like I said, sometimes I feel like there's a little bit of um, bullying. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little bit of bullying. <laughs>
0: well, I like at the end of omega we've made all these drawings there's people who come to your class who have never drawn people who draw a lot and you tell them you're like don't if you show people your drawings after this they may not understand
1: they're not yeah they're not going to they're going to feel very sorry for you they're going to feel get that little look of pity um yeah and then the that's yeah they're going to feel sorry for you it's like the way the way people still are about uh, about me and my drawing, you know, still people still trying to explain to me that I can't draw.
0: Does that to happen?
1: Yes, it happens all the time. So I finally learned to say if I can't draw, what am I doing? What do they say? What can they say? They just back up. They back out of the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's this idea that unless it looks and I think that that's that's the thing that doesn't happen. That's why I'm really interested in the kids because right around the time drawing and writing are split, uh, also an open feeling towards drawing is split. Um, I think I'm gonna have to, that's what I'm gonna have to hunt down. Uh, But there's this period where people, where, where people, even if they're only four, can just draw without freaking out about how it looks. And then when they start to freak out about how it looks, something huge is lost uh and it it happens really rapidly um but there's this period and and uh it seems to be that doing something in a group is really vital you know so i think that that's one of the reasons for classes are there's something about working in a group or working with people that can that can really make this thing come alive um when i'm working with the kids I just come over and I have this huge bag of uh, markers. I finally figured out, we ask kids to draw, but we give them giant markers and giant pieces of paper. Like those markers are even big for me to use. So I found tiny markers and index cards so everything is sort of scaled. Oh. And it's a completely different bag for them to finally have something that's scaled to their hands. Wow. I mean, you'd, it would make sense, yeah. right? You'd think it makes that, perfect sense. Yeah, but but for some reason, we think they want these big markers, but they want really little things. And then you can start to see the intricacies of their work when you give them stuff that's scaled properly. But I usually uh, just dump everything on the floor and have loads of index cards. But I uh, I always wear overalls, so I have a ton of them in my bib pocket, so they always come and take index cards. Um and it's amazing how the group will just all start drawing together. I did this one um event, it was at the pre-K thing, but it was for parents, it was an after school event, and I hired a klezmer band mm. and I um just put uh drawing materials on all the tables and everybody was invited, it was called a drawing jam. Um then I had a overhead projector so that people could put their drawings and we could see them. Um But I didn't give any instruction, I just had the music start. And the parents sat there for a while, the kids knew what to do, and then I just wanted to see what would happen. And What happened was everyone started drawing. I had students who were around who were, so that as soon as uh, people finished their drawings, we'd say, can we put it up? Mm -hmm. And then so we just for, uh, it was just an hour and a half, but slowly covered this gym with drawings without any instruction at all. The kids figured out how to do it. And then have this band kind of marching through and playing. Yeah, That's wonderful. Yeah, it was just like you didn't really have to make an announcement or an introduction or anything. You just put the stuff around and the kids will start.
0: I have to employ a, a rule in my classes of no dissing your art. And, you know, it's basically like we're all taking creative risks, so please don't diss each other, but also don't diss yourself. Like I don't want to hear the preamble of like this sucks or I'm not good at this or like just let your drawings exist. Just let them be what they are. And you have a similar, you have, so you we have, there's that moment where students break off where kids decide that their art has to be good or bad, and that's whether or not they should keep going is based on whether it's good or bad. And then in your classes, you've mentioned this, but I just want to clarify for people, um, you have a policy of just saying, like, good. Yeah, everything. That's
1: it. And we, good. Never, we never talk about the work
0: We don't directly. go deeper into it. We, don't, we never put a,
1: a picture up on the wall and talk about it,
0: mm-hmm. ever. I mean, uh, imagine
1: having somebody stand at the room and we all talk about that person. How do we like them? I like the way their legs are. The legs are good. Their eyes are, I don't know, their eyes aren't really, I don't know, it's sort of boring. Imagine if you're talking about a person Mm -hmm. that's standing there. How's that person going to want to be around you after that? And and drawings are the same way. If you start to talk about them like they're a thing that's right there and you can say, well, I like your legs, but I don't like your hands. Uh, Your nose looks really overworked. Why would that person ever come back? And that's what I say when people talk about their drawings. I don't like this. It's like, why would this drawing ever come to you if, if you're just going to sit, you know like say these things about it? Um, and also you are the only your hand is the only, only route that drawing has to getting into the world. Once it's in the world, it can big it away from you and your nastiness, but that, your hand is the only way it can come. Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why um we never talk about the work directly but we show each other our work that's critical because people are kind to other people's work they're nasty to their own work Mm -hmm. we copy each other's work we put it up we look at it but we never ever put something up and just sit and talk about it um i would never do that in a million years I just think it's a horrible, horrible idea. Um, it's not, it's, it's, it's a really common crit, critique. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that sound like a blast? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I, I just, and, and the thing that happens is, what I show at the end of the semester is the work happens anyway. If this work happens anyway, and even may happen in a stronger way, why not consider putting that to the side for a while? I mean, and one of the things Marilyn really, she had a role for us, which is we could talk about work. She did put stuff up and we'd look at it. She would terrify us. She'd say, what's there? We'd look and we'd go, I don't know, It was terror. She goes, where's terror? It'd be like a drawing of a volcano, right? Where's terror? Show me. She goes, what's there? It's like, well, space and time. She goes, is there a volcano there? like yes a volcano good um, she was <laughs> like but uh, yeah I uh, I would never do that to, to work I do want people to look at each other's work I want them to see each other's work and I want them to co- and I think copying is the very best way you can do it you learn so much more by copying than by talking about something um, but if the work can happen without the critique and can happen better then why not leave that out
0: yeah, especially for people that are just emerging, their hand is just like, ooh, I'm yeah. doing this for the first time. I think I, sometimes I tell them it's like, like a baby deer was just born and it's just learning to walk. And if there was a whole peanut gallery being like, boo, not good enough. Yeah, it wouldn't
1: shaky legs. It's,
0: it's not helpful.
1: No, and it's and it, it's, it's it's also that people don't know what they're saying when they're critiquing they don't know what they're saying. They're saying things to either impress the teacher or impress each other. It's just the same reason why Q and A's are terrible after a talk mm. because the person's not really, usually not asking a question. It's usually, I want to say something that makes the person I'm asking like me and know that I'm not dumb and that I care, um, which is all good, but it's not about the work. so. It's, it, it's really to be able to see, to find a way to be able to see what's there. That's what Marilyn always would say, and she'd say not to suggest, to make something better, not to fix it, not even to compliment, uh, just to be able to see what's there, like you were alone. She's the one that taught me, she didn't teach me how to do this, but when I was trying really hard to learn how to see what's there, and I'd look at a painting like in a gallery or something, I wouldn't know what the hell I thought about it. I'd be looking at, what? The, what is this? And then I thought, imagine it at the Jiffy Lube waiting room. Imagine you're getting your oil changed, and you're in that room with the old coffee and the Naga Hyde torn-up couch, and that painting's there. And would it give you energy, or would it be a place where your eye would go, or what would it be to you in that situation? Then I could see. Then I could see the picture. Um once I could get it out of that gallery setting, which I think is it's its own problem, you it's know. It's too
0: much. It's too much. That's it, there's right. so much pretense, then there's capitalism involved and gatekeeping and classes. There's just a whole heap yeah. of stuff and being the chosen
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: ones and I I heard once I don't remember if I heard Art Spiegelman say this at a talk or somebody told me but Talking about going to look at fine art at a gallery or a museum and not really getting it. But then if he just imagined that these were giant panels from a comic. Oh, how what a good idea. Shifting his perspective. Made what a him, good idea. It makes me appreciate it so much more. What a good
1: idea. Also hello. Ponyo's here. Hi Ponyo. Um, hey. Also this idea of making it a, a panel in a comic makes it part of a series.
0: Yeah, and so then you're like, what's happening before? What's happening after?
1: I know it. I know (laughs) it. Who doesn't get grumpy when their belly is rubbed by a stranger?
0: (laughs) Sometimes Ponyo gets very particular. She's like, I want to be held like this, but not like this. Yeah. Um, Is there anything that you want people to know about this book? We've been talking for a long time. Thank you for all of your time. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, the book was uh, made specifically to sort of mimic uh, my class, my my Making Comics uh, 1 class. Mm -hmm. And... um, Made for specifically for people, uh, either uh, people wanted to teach comics, Mm -hmm. um, so that even if they didn't know how to draw or have a comics practice, they could use this to teach comics. Um, And also, if people who don't know don't feel comfortable drawing and have interest in comics, that it's really made for people at any stage, Mm -hmm. but particularly people who just gave up on drawing and want to give it another try.
0: It's wonderful. It feels like a lot of the things from Omega. Plus- That's
1: exactly what it is. It's um, it's all the same exercises that we do um, in Comics One, and uh, and then a lot of the the artwork in it is um, copies of student work. It's either uh, my it's either actual student work or it's me copying uh, my students' work.
0: I love it. Oh, I had one last question for oh, you. It, there was one, yeah, one, yeah, thing, one more thing Sorry. I wanted to
1: say, and it's all hand done. There isn't anything in there that wasn't drawn by hand. There's no computer stuff, So that's the and that's the actual size of the drawings. Because um, that was the other thing I wanted to do. I wanted to see if I could write an entire book, every little bit of it by hand, um, and I did.
0: It must have taken you forever.
1: It took a long time. I had a good time. It's still longer. It's still shorter than doing it with a computer. I swear to you.
0: <laughs> well, it has the whole book has so much life in it.
1: Yeah, and it's and it looks just like a comp book. It's so it it really mimics the composition notebook that we use um, in the class.
0: There's so many how to make comics books or academic books about making comics that make me want to die. Yeah, me too. That make me want to stop making comics. Me too. They also it it it's, it, it bothers me that um, people will when they're
1: teaching comics classes will start with those books and especially books that tell you how to read comics or how to approach them so that you never really get your own chance to do it um yeah I think you should and I also am really against comics classes that try to teach studying comics without drawing them you know it's like studying Portuguese but we will never speak it because that's not necessary to the understanding of it it's like whatever you think they are they're not unless you're unless you end up doing some drawing yeah like you really can't know what they are until you do some drawing I think even like I said it's it's even if you're just taking a panel and making a, I say draw it like it's a map of that panel versus like you trying to reproduce it Ooh. just like where's the where is that character where's the house where's the light coming from um I think drawing is essential but it scares the hell out of people. It really I mean does. it scares them in the way the only parallel that I have is uh, the their horror that they have about what they've made on a page is the same as if they just suddenly got a bloody nose or <laughs> snot came out of their mouths. I mean, it's that same t- terror of like a bodily fluid.
0: It's so vulnerable.
1: yeah, it it's, they feel so ashamed and embarrassed, you know what why? It's just a little mark on a piece of paper. But it is. Know. It's huge. Yeah, why? That's what I want to know, see? That's it. And, and I think that that's, the answer is somewhere in those early days. I'm mm-hmm. going to find out.
0: Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. For
0: talking to me about this stuff.
1: And I'm so happy that Ponyo is my new dog. Oh,
0: enjoy your <laughs> new dog. I'm going to give you some eye drops for her. Uh, I can do the eye drops. You know. I just want to <laughs> say it's great being here. <laughs>
1: Does she, she have a voice? Do you guys Yeah, change? her yeah. voice
0: has changed when I first when I first got her, her voice was like this and it and it kind of injured my vocal cords uh-huh. a little bit. Doing her voice so much. But then now her voice now she a little bit it's a little bit of an impression of my friend's four year old. Plus another dog we know named Sammy, who's Allie's dog. She a little bit can't say her ahs anymore. She's got a <laughs> speech great. impediment. But she she's really great It's really great to be here.
1: Have you noticed that she'll say stuff it's you doing her voice, but yes. she'll say stuff that surprises you and makes you laugh? Yes. Okay. That's comics.
0: Yeah. That's that because,
1: because the idea that I'm doing my dog's voice and making my, I mean, like, the dog saying stuff that I could have never thought of in a million years, even though it's me doing their voice. Yeah. There's something interesting there.
0: Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.